Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 101 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we're discovering that once you get past episode 100, it's kind of hard to say the number. So moving (laughs) forward, maybe we'll do 101, 101. 102. 101. 101. Maybe I should do some British accent. Welcome to 101. No, let's not do that. It sounded more like a Disney fairy than a British person. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, we have a couple follow-ups from episode 100, actually. We had our very exciting giveaway. Yeah, we give away, well... Four $25 gift cards, gift certificates, I should say, to an indie bookstore of the person's choice. And that came out of our own pockets. We didn't use any donation money on that because we definitely wanted to give back to listeners. And as longtime listeners know, every 10th episode, we do a giveaway. So the 100 episode was a bit different. And we wanted to support independent bookstores and also... You know, sending books in the mail these days can be a little dicey. Not everybody likes to receive mail at this point. So we thought the gift card option would be a good way to help people get the books that they specifically wanted and support indie bookstores. Right. And it turned out really well because we ended up, you know, having winners literally across the country. Congratulations to Robin in California, Emily in Michigan, Bethany in Wisconsin, in Kristen in Connecticut. Yeah. So we spread it out. It was really fun. And um, we reached out to them and they each picked the indie of their choice and we got them a gift card. So thank you for being subscribers to the newsletter as well. Because as you know, if you're subscribed, you're automatically entered to win. Yeah. And then we have some just other thank yous. We want to thank Sue, who's a new Patreon sponsor. Alicia, who sent us a nice congratulations on your 100th episode via PayPal donation. And then we also wanted to thank Linda, who is our librarian and keeps our Goodreads bookshelf up to date. And Linda reached out and said, as if we don't mention enough books on our regular episode, she also wants to start adding the books we're mentioning on our BookTube videos. So she's going to make a special notation on Goodreads if it's a book that's been mentioned via the video versus via the episode. That's great. Thank you so much, Linda. And thank you so much to our Patreon and supporters. And it just means so much to us. We really appreciate your support in in all different ways. And we also wanted to thank Aunt Ellen, (laughs) who's been a listener from day one. We really appreciate it. She's also hosted us putting us up in New York when we go to book expo and various book events and just being a cheerleader on the sidelines. We really appreciate it. And we miss her. Gosh. Yes. I can't wait to get back into New York. Um, And we also want to thank our partners, my wife, Laura, and the gentleman caller, Jim. Jim. Yes. We just want to thank them for their support over the years and encouragement. It's, it does take some time on our end and they, They both know how much we love books and how much they bring to our lives and how much they calm us down. (laughs) Right. So um, how grateful they are that we have a partner in crime that loves, you know, like we can keep each other talking about books so they don't have to talk to us so much. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So many thanks all around. Yeah, and and Jim and Laura both have at different various points over the past three years bailed us out, too, and helped in ways that, 
you listeners might not know, I mean, Laura is very good with audio and video and has, you know, come to the rescue when we've had some technical snafus over the years. And Jim, you know, basically mostly puts up with me talking about the book Cougars incessantly. (laughs) And also when we were in Sedona had to come to the rescue because our Wi-Fi didn't support me uploading the file. And I was in a panic at 1130 at night and he was literally driving me around Sedona looking for good Wi-Fi. So (laughs) they've all, they've both come to the rescue at various times. So we appreciate that. (laughs) It takes a village, people. It does, indeed. All right, so jumping into our regular segments here, what are you currently reading, Emily? I am reading Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count by Phil Buchanan. He's kind of a big wig in the philanthropic sector. He is the CEO, I don't know if they call him the CEO or the executive director of the Center for Effective Philanthropy in Boston. And this is a book I heard about a while ago and, and purchased and just haven't gotten around to reading it. But my my fellow cougar, Chris, when she started talking about reading a chapter from a nonfiction book every day, I've really jumped on the bandwagon with that. And this is my newest one. I finished one last week. And every morning I'm just starting the day reading a chapter and I really love it. And I've been doing a lot of work right now um, with grant making just because of the state of the world, really. And it's really been a shot in the arm because he talks about how to give money away in the most effective ways. So I'm really enjoying it. I just started it. I'm just on chapter one. So more to come on that. And then the fiction book I'm just starting is The Late Bloomers Club by Louise Miller um, she was on uh, one of the panels that I'll talk about in an, in our upcoming um, Couch Biblio Adventure segment. Um, but I've read one of her books before, and it's she was in the um, cooking panel, I mean, because she's a baker and a writer, my favorite combination. And yesterday after listening to her talk, I was like, you know, it's been so long since I've just read one of those go-to books for me where you're just in a small town and there's cooking involved and some family dramas or some love or something like that. So I decided to pick up her book. So I just started that last night as well. Again, The Late Bloomers Club by Louise Miller. Nice. What about you? So I'm still making my way through Harriet Beecher Stowe, A Life by Joan Hedrick, reading a chapter a day. On most days, there were a couple days here and there when I didn't do it. And I'm being gentle with myself and not beating my usual anal self up like you must read a chapter a day, you know. (laughs) It's fantastic biography and I will definitely talk more about that when I finish it, which will be on the next episode because I just have a few chapters left. The fiction I'm reading is The Country of the Pointed Furs by Sarah Orne Jewett, which is 19th century fiction set on a in a coastal town of Maine which is what Jewett is the area Jewett is from originally and what she's known for writing about is bringing these small Maine towns to life with all the different inhabitants and I'm really loving it it's a book I've wanted to read for a really long time Uh, Jewett was really influential in Willa Cather's development as a writer they struck up a immediate friendship when they met in Boston. And unfortunately, Jewett, I think she died within the year 
of them becoming friends, but uh, she wrote a very influential letter to Cather that enthusiasts of both writers often talk about. And I'll talk about that more on the next episode when I will talk more about Sarah Orne Jewett after I finish this wonderful book of hers. And then I'm also... So, uh, oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, didn't mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but did she die... Was she a peer in age of Cather or did she die um, because she was older? Yeah, she know? was older, but she was only okay. in her late 60s, I believe. She had, she didn't have great health throughout most of her life. She had rheumatoid arthritis from a young age, um, but she was in a carriage accident in her, I don't know, gosh, it was, it was her late 50s or early 60s that ended her writing career for the most part. And then she had strokes that eventually killed her. Okay. Yeah. So she was older than Cather. She was the generation older, but still died pretty young for what we think of a lifespan, at least today. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but I have to say like, Jesus, it's amazing. Anybody lived in the 19th century past their first illness because the treatments really took a toll on people physically. You know, we talked about that with Louisa May Alcott and Mm -hmm. how her treatment probably contributed to her early death. And, you know, the same thing with Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, There was a a movement called the Water Cure in the mid-19th century or the 1840s about, so almost mid. Um, And one of the things about Stowe is that she was really she had her finger on the pulse of what was going on. And so this water cure was all about consuming lots of water and being in water and exercising a lot, going on lots of walks, which probably helped save her life from the treatments that she had been getting for various conditions that were more toxic than the conditions in in many instances. So um, yeah, so I'm having a real renaissance with the 19th century right now, specifically American women writers. Yeah, that's great. I, I have to admit, I'm embarrassed to say I had, I saw you posting about reading that book. I'd heard her name, but I wasn't really familiar with what she'd written. Yeah. So I was glad. I'm glad to learn more. Yeah, I think you'd really, you love Maine. I know you love yes. Maine. So yeah. I mean, I yeah, think well, that, that would. Yeah, well, that perked my ears when you said that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm also listening to an audiobook. It is Jenna Blum's modern scholars lecture series on writing i thought about you at one point because i think it was in this chapter where she's talking about writing dialogue um and doing an writing exercises and she said if your writing is getting boring or something is stalling have your characters talk about food (laughs) because food is always something that is interesting and kind of sensuous that involves a lot of senses yeah, yeah, that's true. There's a lot, and there's a lot of passion around food. I think mm-hmm. that's what I think. That that's really cool. I love that idea. Yeah, I've also heard. I think when, maybe when we were listening to Jennifer McMahon, where she talked about writing a letter, having your characters like write a letter to somebody or write a letter to your character or something like that. Mm -hmm. That seems like a cool exercise also. But was she saying, when you were saying that, did she mean write it into your work? Like that the characters are actually talking about food or just do that as an exercise on the side? Oh, I think when you're drafting your story. Oh, I see. Okay. It's just, or even if you're just doing some brainstorming or, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, she's been teaching writing for like 20 years at Grub Street, right? So yeah. I bet she has a lot of tools of the trade. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. 
Yeah. Does she narrate it, Chris? Is it yeah, is it her just her. like lecturing? Yeah, okay. it's her. It's these the modern scholar series. I've listened to quite a few of them over the years, and some of them do sound more like they're in a classroom. I've even mm-hmm. listened to some where there's clapping at the end of each lecture, um, mm-hmm. and this one sounds more like she did it in a studio because uh, there's at, at least up until the point I'm, I've listened to there's there's no one else other than her voice, and then. Uh, between each chapter, like the quote moderator comes in and says what you just heard and what's coming up next. Okay. Believe, so there's a little yeah. form to it. Oh, okay. yeah. A little form between each yeah. chapter slash cool. lecture. Yeah. This is a good time for people to be doing, you know, master class things and the great courses and things like that. So mm-hmm. now I signed up for something through Coursera, I think, and I haven't done a single thing. <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> I think yeah. I have to actually calendar it for me to get it done. But yeah. What have you just read, Emily? So I read a book for my book group called The Night Theater. Actually, there's no the. It's just Night Theater by Vikram Perilkar. And this was such an odd book, but I really enjoyed it. And it had overarchingly all thumbs up from the six people in my book group. So that's unusual for us to all agree in that way. And in this book, what theater refers to is actually the surgical theater. It's not like the theater of actors. So um, it's about a surgeon who gets, he's a very well thought of surgeon in a city. And then there's kind of a conflict between him and a surgeon who had trained under him who throws him under the bus, Mm. not literally, but in his career. (laughs) So he ends up, the only way he can continue to be a surgeon is to go to a very rural little clinic, kind of an outpost. And this all takes place in India. And so he's kind of lost his way, but he still has a lot of skill. And one night, this man and his wife and his young son, pregnant wife, I should say, show up and they have kind of made a deal with the devil or in this case, an angel. They've been murdered. So they show up dead, but they've been given life if they can be revived within 24 hours and stay in this small little village. So it's very much a, and they have to do this, of course, all secretively because these people are kind of like dead, but alive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's hard. It's a very hard book to describe. And it's almost a thriller as you're reading it because you just don't know what's going to happen. And Vikram P- Perlkar, the author, is a doctor. Okay. I think he's a researcher in leukemia or some, or lymphoma or something like that. So he definitely knows his way around doctor stuff and surgeries. And so there were many scenes where he then goes to operate on these three people who are dead, right? So it was... The surgery scenes were a little graphic. I have to admit, I'm not a skimmer, but there were a couple times where I was like, okay, (laughs) enough with the dry blood. I just really don't want to read any more about dry blood. But he's, it was very, like I said, it's almost like a thriller because he's operating on these people knowing that if he does it correctly, they'll be brought back to life. But when you're doing a surgery on a real live person, you know, the blood is flowing and you know what's going to happen with the blood. Because you you sew them back up and then you, you know, see what happens. But in this case, he's trying to figure out where could the leaks be and stuff like that. And it was very odd. And like I said, I had to skim through a little bit of that. 
but so it's a it's very much a I think a a search and I wondered if I got a chance to talk to the author I would ask him if as a doctor he has thought about you know either during the course of his schooling or just his career you know life and death and where do people go when they die and he's definitely asking that big question in this book I think Mm -hmm. and it's very interesting and also like you know would you make it what deal would you make how far would you go to keep your family alive if they had been killed unexpectedly in other words it wasn't just like your you know 90 year old father passed away which is the natural course of life Mm -hmm. in this book you know they are murdered and so it's an unexpected course of events so I enjoyed it it surprised me it was a very quick read I think I read it in one or two sittings Um, again it's called Night Theater by Vikram Palarkar I read and I mentioned this book last time is what I was currently reading it is called Kill Creek by Scott Thomas. It's a haunted house novel. And, you know, it had such a great premise, but I thought that execution was a bit lacking. There were times when I felt like, okay, come on now, let's let's move things along. The book was, it's 414 pages. I do feel like it could have been trimmed a lot to keep the action going a little bit more in some ways. Um, but the premise, again, is that there there's this internet mogul guy, he's Irish, and he is, horror is his thing. And so he wants to up his his clicks all the time, up his ratings. So he's always looking for the next thing to really grab people. So he gets these four horror writers together. They're all very different writers of horror. One is a kind of a conservative Christian guy who writes young adult horror one is a woman who is like ragingly sexual and graphically violent in her fiction the main guy who's kind of like it's told from his perspective a lot of the time is from the midwest who was had a really promising career that is just kind of you know rumor has it that he's kind of dried up and can't produce and then the other the fourth writer is a an older gentleman who was considered like you know the godfather of horror fiction really highly esteemed man so the internet mogul convinces them all to do this one day interview with him and they all sign a contract it happens to be the interview is going to be at this known haunted house in kansas no one has been in the house for i think 15 years or so there had been two sisters who had lived there. They're the last ones there. And so he's going to live stream their interview is what the big hook is going to be. Yeah. And you would think like that. I mean, things happen, <laughs> but it's what happens after they leave the house. That is kind of the heart and the juice of the story. And I don't want to say more about it because it's, you know, I don't want to ruin anything for anybody if you're into haunt, haunted house stories, certainly if you're a horror aficionado, this is a book you'll want to read. It was a finalist. Uh, it, well, it was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award, which is the big horror award. And Joyce Carol Oates blurbed it on the cover, and she called it intensely realized and beautifully orchestrated gothic horror. 
Mm. I did one of the, I was looking through my tabs on it uh, this morning before we were going to be recording. And you asked John Valeri a question about Ghost Riders on the video we had with him last week on our BookTube channel. And this one caught my eye. The writer's talking about uh, writing a story. The, the quote is this. The only silver lining is that my ghost writers will do all the work, but their names will be in little tiny letters under mine. He swept a hand through the air to imply the print on the cover. Written by a dead man with assistance from some poor asshole. <laughs> so that made me laugh in light of, you know, our conversation with John about ghost writers. I guess the biggest problem I had with it were some of the stereotypes of mm. women and sex. And uh, the, the guy who's the Christian writer is obese. Mm. Even after he's lost a lot of weight, he's still fat. And, you know, it's just stereotypical representation of knocking down a fat person. Yeah, um, I that I, I didn't always appreciate that. Well, mm-hmm. I never appreciate that, but it got a little bit old. And yeah. um, so I didn't appreciate some of the stereotypes. But overall, the story itself was really inventive, I thought. Yeah, just needed a little editing, it sounds like. I think so. So that was Kill Creek mm-hmm. by Scott Thomas. Well, I finished Valentine by Elizabeth Wetmore, and I did talk about this one on the last episode as well. It's a debut novel set in West Texas in the 70s. It opens with a rape, which, you know, I was thankful that it wasn't graphic at all, but I just want to let people know that that is part of the subject of this book. And I was a little bit, um, I did talk about it when I hadn't read much of it last time, and it did it did turn out to be different than I thought it was going to be because it's told from the perspective of, I think, five different women in this town, in West Texas, in the 70s. And they all do have something, you know, in common with this young woman who was raped and also just like the effect that that has on the town. But it was really so much about the plight of women in Texas in the 70s. And you have to ask if it's changed. I don't know. I don't know much about that area of Texas, but very stark, very, I mean, there was one line, which I wish I had written down, which I didn't, a a quote where one woman who had been raised in the town and was, you know, had been a cheerleader and all of that was talking about how we were raised to cheer for men and it never changes. You know, and I thought that was really prophetic. And so it was a lot about women who felt, you know, stuck in this place. And also, you know, women who had a good life there, but what their life was like. So Mm -hmm. I really loved it. I thought it was an amazing debut. I cannot wait to see what else she writes. I know that she writes a lot of essays and things like that. So you can find her writing around out in the world. And it's been picked for Jenna Bush's Today show book club so hopefully a lot of people are going to read it valentine by elizabeth wetmore highly recommend cool you know that thing about cheering for men it brought to mind one of the lines in sarah orange it's the uh, country of pointed furs that i'm reading and it's these the two women are going to be taking a boat ride to an island where one of them was born to visit her mom they decide to take their own boat instead of hiring a different boat or because they don't want it one of them says let me just, i'm totally butchering this she says 
Anyway, we don't want to carry no men folks having to be considered every minute and taking up all our time. <laughs> I thought that was so great that like, you know, here the two women yeah. could go off by themselves, you know, just with the cousin. But if a man was around, they were going to have to be considered about him because right. they need that yeah. constant cheerleading. And that is so stereotypical. Sorry, men. I don't mean to sound <laughs> like you all need that. But there is that element of gender relations. Sure. That apparently yeah, it cha- it changes things. Yeah. It definitely changes conversation, I think, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other book I read, it is a fantastic debut novel. It's called You Let Me In by Camilla Bruce. I reviewed this for Criminal Element. And, you know, when the editor sends out the spreadsheet of books available for review, I chose this because it said debut novel, Norwegian writer. And I thought, I always love a good debut. This one I thought was going to be kind of like a typical murder mystery thriller you know it says uh, on the back you let me in as a chilling modern fairy tale for fans of shirley jackson carmen maria Machado, and tanya french and i thought okay i'm down with that it blew my mind this book i have to say like it it really takes writing about trauma to a new fictional level it is a fairy tale And as traditional fairy tales go, like from the Brothers Grimm, they're really violent and very graphic. And this book is no different. It is about, it starts off with a young girl who has this, you know, is it a make-believe friend? Is it a real creature uh, called Pepperman? And this creature, she can see it attempting to hurt somebody that she loves And so the girl acts out and causes a problem of the violence to distract the person that she loves, like say her mom. And so you think that this girl, what's going on with her? Does she just have behavioral problems? Is this a real creature? You know, throughout the novel, it's, it's from her childhood until she's an older woman. And it becomes pretty clear that what's going on is she's being sexually abused regularly by someone and this is it this creature that's doing it or again is it her imagination and there's also a book involved by her therapist that becomes a huge bestseller about trauma and sexual abuse that sets the parents off because they are typical or they're not typical they're classic you know stereotypical middle class people who want to have the perfect home the perfect yard the perfect children and they don't get that they have two girls and a boy the boy is sent off to boarding school at some point and you figure out why later um this daughter is the messed up one i'm using that in air quotes and then there's the quote perfect daughter So it's told very much like a fairy tale. And if somebody had told me that, I wouldn't have picked up the book because I'm not into fairy tales, supposedly. Yeah. I could not put this book down. It engaged me so hard. I was fascinated by it. And I really think it has potential to be a feminist classic because it really goes after the issue of sexual abuse and what the trauma does to a child, to a family, to a community. 
it was amazing. And I, I can't believe mm-hmm. it's a debut. It was so tight. The narrative voice is flawless in this book. I completely recommend this book. It may not be to everyone's taste. I, it's going to definitely be one of my books of the year. Wow. I'm tell. so bummed because I got an arc of it and I um, put it in the mail to my daughter. Oh, did you? <laughs> well, I'll give you mine. Okay. Yeah. That'd be great. But, I, you know, she's a school social worker, so it sounds like the perfect book for her. Oh, I'm going to yeah. tell her to move it up on her list. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is a fantastic book. Yeah. I, I can't yeah. say enough about it. And I, you know, um, that might have been a little spoilery. But it, some of the things I said happened very early on in the book. So, it, um, yeah, fantastic. And the cool thing is she, yeah, yeah I'll stop. Okay. <laughs> but you want to say the title again? Yeah, the title is You'll Let Me In by Camilla Bruce. It's out now. It came out um, in April. And we'll link to my review on Criminal Element in the Great. show notes. Well, I also listened to an audiobook called Unorthodox, The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots by Deborah Feldman. This is a book that's been made into a very short series on um, Netflix. So I wanted to read or slash listen to it before I watch the show because it's been everywhere. I've been hearing and seeing. And then on Ellen called me and told me to watch it. And the same week, my daughter called and told me to watch it. So I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to listen to it first. It was a pretty quick listen. It's a memoir about this woman's life being raised in Williamsburg, New York, I don't know if you say Brooklyn. I'm not exactly sure. I kept meaning to ask my aunt about where exactly was this or look it up. But anyway, a very specific uh, sect of Judaism called the Satmar sect, I guess is the right way to say that. I hope I didn't screw that up. And um, she is, you know, born and raised into this religion and it's very strict and the women's role in the religious aspect is very strict that really they're being raised to produce to have get married very young and have babies and the idea behind that the the satmars is to repopulate the world of the jews that were killed during the holocaust Hmm. so they have a very specific charge in that way but they're raised in such a tight-knit community without, you know, television and telephones and, you know, things like that, that it's very insular. It's similar, not in what their, you know, religious beliefs are, but in kind of the the Amish community, you know, where there's not a lot of outside influence. Mm-hmm. And she's someone who, who questions things and she's, you know, sneaking books. She's an avid reader. And so she sneaks books and reads. So she is kind of getting introduced to the outside world through literature, which I found really compelling. And she ends up getting married very young. She's matched with somebody gets married very young and they have a lot of problems with sex. Hmm. They just simply are having problems having sex. And so She is, you know, every day it's like, are you pregnant? Are you pregnant? So it's very stressful. Like I was very, it was definitely a butt clencher to me to read or listen to. And it made me kind of angry too, because she's in school at one point and it's kind of, you know, she's very, very smart and very interested in learning, but she knows like this is fruitless for me because I'm not going to be able to really use my intellect. I'm going to be, you know, my, my path is already forged for me Mm -hmm. and she ends up leaving. That's ultimately what happens. 
So I don't want to say more about, you know, the hows or the whys of it. But I, I found it very interesting. I'm glad that I listened to it. But it also did, I have to admit, make me kind of angry. Mm-hmm. Because I felt for her and I felt for how she felt trapped, you know. Yeah. Um, but then did end up making a new life for herself. So again, it's called Unorthodox, The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots by Deborah Feldman. Wow. Now, since she left, is she kind of banished from the community or can she go back? No, she's banished. Okay. Yeah. I would think. I mean, it didn't really talk about that. It really ends with her leaving. So you don't really know what the rest of her life looks like. She did. There is an epilogue. Where she does, you know, talk about where she went to and things like that. But it doesn't go into a lot of detail about that. Okay. Well, I'll talk about the adaptation that I watched later okay. in our upcoming segment. All right. Yeah, it sounds a lot like, you know, situation for women in the 19th century of a certain class where, you know, you might have this education, uh, but then there's no avenue for you really other than having children. Right. If you're married, you know, because, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I read another novel that is uh, that I received an arc for it. Um, it just came well, it came out in February. It's called The Snow Collectors. It's by Tina May Hall. And this is another book that is not a straightforward mystery thriller. At its heart, there's a murder mystery. Um, it's a story about a woman who's a twin, and her twin and her mom and dad all, disappeared when their boat was out at sea they were sailing in their boat just disappeared they're presumed oh. dead so she leaves the oceanside which is where she had grown up and she goes to an area where it never stops snowing so she's kind of up by the canadian border you know you get the feeling like vermont maine-ish because there is a little action happening in canada crossing the border at one point and She's a writer, and so, you know, she has this insurance money now from her dead family members, and she buys this plot of land, and she's living with her dog, doing her writing, when a body shows up on her property of a woman who is, you know, it's snowing, uh, she has no shoes on this woman, and she has a scrap of paper in her hand with writing on it. Wait, is, is it a dead body or it's an a alive? dead body? She's okay. dead. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Dead woman under a tree. Um, so she takes a scrap of paper knowing that, you know, that's probably not a great thing to do when <laughs> a dead body right. is found on your property. Um, enter the local police chief who is a love slash lust interest. And, you know, you have this at its core, a murder mystery but kind of wrapped around it all, it's also a historical fiction because it goes back in time to the Franklin expedition, you know, trying to reach the North Pole. Franklin's was one where um, their two boats, their two ships, I should say, got stuck in ice and all of the crew members were never heard from again. They all perished. So you have that going back and forth in time with that. And there's some fairy tale elements, some mythological elements happening, magical realism. You do have to suspend belief sometimes. There is a creepy old house, so you have that gothic element going on as well. It's a little bit of everything, this novel. And 
I have to, I'm still kind of figuring out (laughs) what to think of it. Um, Mm. I obviously kept reading it. It was compelling in that way. Having to suspend my disbelief at times was a little, you know, took me out of the story a little bit, which is always a little, um, you know, makes me not appreciate a book as much when that happens as one that carries me along. But I really, I thought it was very interesting and really fascinating. And another line throughout the book is the issue of extinction because one of the reasons it's always snowing is there's this is a climate change issue happening um in other parts of the country are burning up and so you have that issue there's a man who has this museum of extinction that's a big old aircraft carrier i think and he know he's collecting things that are extinct or going to be extinct uh and one of the things that was fascinating was like there's so the, the police chief's mom collects birds of prey Ooh. living birds of prey so you have some bird action happening in this book as well <laughs> and the man who owns that museum is in town for a specific reason as well and this one quote really kind of has stuck with me He's talking about a bird. There's only three of these birds left in the world. And the police chief's mom has one of them. And the man who owns the Museum of Extinction says about the bird, his eventual disappearance hangs over him like a glamour. Mm. You know, so it's all of that. It's that attitude of when things become rare and extinct, they somehow increase in value. Right. And just how kind of disgusting that is when you yeah. think about it. So fantastic book. I Fantastic weird, you know. I don't know what yeah. other people would think about it. I'd love to hear. Again, that's The Snow Collectors by Tina May Hall. It just came out in February, so it is out there in the world. Oh, great. Wow. You seem to be having a theme of haunted houses. Right? I didn't even know that one was going to have, you know, creepy house action. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the winter's the right time to do that. But actually, we're kind of getting out of the winter, although I think it's a chance of snow in some parts of New England today. Oh. So who knows? Yeah. But the other book I finished was The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in the New Gilded Age by David Callahan. I was so excited to read this book. It's I, I was so excited to read it when I got it. It was one of those books. And then, you know, it just sat on a table that I looked at every day and kind of scoffed at me that I wasn't <laughs> reading it. So um, I did your, you know, used your idea of reading a chapter a day. And what this book was really about is how we have you know, people with tremendous wealth now who have gotten very involved in the philanthropic sector. And he really breaks them down by kind of people. So the part that I'll talk about that was fascinating to me is like people who are in, have made their money in the world of technology, when they get involved in philanthropy, you know, they made their money by kind of being risk takers and not being afraid to fail. And a lot of people who make it big in the technology world and in the entrepreneurial world in general, have had plenty of failures before they had their big success. And so when they step into philanthropy, they kind of do the same thing. So they're willing to give money to try to solve problems and take risks doing it, as opposed to, you know, walking the more tried and true path. Mm -hmm. 
So I thought that was really interesting. He talked about many different avenues and I'm not going to, I could talk about this book for hours and I know not as many people are interested in this as me, but I did just want to put a shout out to people. I know a lot of people right now are want to help and they don't know how to help, you know, and, and a lot of people, like I know when my kids were young in particular, I helped with my time because I didn't have the money to give. And, you know, they say you either give your, of your time and your talent or of your money. Sometimes you do both. But it's really hard to figure out how to give of your time right now because we're all being asked to shelter in place. And I know a lot of people, they don't have the money that they typically had to give or they're afraid to give right now for good reason. But I did just want to give a shout out to community foundations. If you do want to give money and you're not quite sure what to give and you have a community foundation in your area, they are really on the forefront of knowing the nonprofits that need help right now. And a lot of them have started funds. And so you could give money that way. And they also do know of the agencies who are looking for volunteer help right now and how you can help and keep yourself safe. Food banks are obviously one of the ones that could really use both money and time right now. So I just wanted to put a plug in for that. David Callahan is very well connected in the world of philanthropy, and I thought that he did a really good job with this book. Some of the negative reviews I read of it were people thought it was just kind of like him taking a walk down the lane of like talking about all the famous people who are involved in philanthropy. Hmm. But to me, it was really interesting to learn about how they want to give and how they're changing the world that we live in. And I mean, certain things wouldn't happen without them being willing to take the risks they take with their money because our government's not going to take those risks, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's taxpayer dollar. So I thought he made some really good points. Again, it was called The Givers, Wealth, Power and Philanthropy in the New Gilded Age by David Callahan. Sounds fascinating. Would that be of interest to a general reader, do you think? Or is it more for people who are really into philanthropy? You know, it might be a little inside baseball. I think it could be really interesting to listen to. But um, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm so interested in it. It's hard for me to see the forest through the trees, you know. Uh Um, I do think it would be interesting if you want to have a better understanding of how philanthropy affects your life. Mm. You know, because I think a lot of people don't understand the tremendous wealth that gets poured into our society and you know you might hear about it more in the political realm because they talk about PACs and things like that that are funded by individuals Mm -hmm. but you know things like the um, Marriage Equality Act that would have never come to be if a billionaire hadn't poured uh, like something like 150 million dollars into the campaign to just He was determined that this was going to happen, you know. So again, depending on your politics, you might think it's wonderful that philanthropists step in to do things. You might not think it is wonderful and that you think the government should be responsible for a lot of things. Um, He does also get into helping you understand how taxes work and how, you know, again, if some of these ultra wealthy were paying more in taxes, the government might be able to do more of the work that philanthropy is asked to do. Mm-hmm. And that's just a question that I think will, I think that's always going to be something that's talked about. And I'm not sure what the answers are for that. 
You know, that's, so I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fascinating because I think the issue of money in politics, you know, would you want more tax dollars going to politicians who have iffy agendas mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe in it for the money as opposed to right. being public servants, which was the initial idea of serving office in America? Or do you want to go with the nonprofit that, you know, like you talk about community foundations and I know just with the work you do, like how much scrutiny and evaluation there is of nonprofits. So they, the community foundations give me a sense of comfort and knowing that these foundations are kind of being vetted. Right. You know, Absolutely. and I think yeah. there, there's more transparency in some ways, it seems, than with some government, uh, depending on the administration, I suppose. Yeah. Well, and it also just has to do with lobbyists and things like that, right? So the government gets a little bit complicated and the way the money is spent is complicated for sure. And, you know, this, but the same people could say the same for the big philanthropists, you know, who's vetting the work that they do, you know? The big boys, so yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's very complicated. And I agree with you about community foundations. I mean, they definitely... They also understand, you know, the communities within which they work. They hold convenings. They learn what is needed to support communities. I mean, and and wonderful things are happening right now. I mean, I was just on a call last week where one of the things that's happening in New Haven is, you know, all the children have been asked to move to online school. Well, a lot of kids don't have internet and they don't have a computer, so someone stood up with $50,000 and said, I will give, I'm giving you $50,000 to buy Chromebooks for kids in New Haven, you know, which was a wonderful gesture. And they knew they could go to the community foundation and the community foundation has the ties to the schools and things like that. And it could just be done much more seamlessly than if you or I said, you know, hey, I have this idea. I want to get Chromebooks for kids in New Haven, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons to all of it. And I do think that reading the book helped me just have a better understanding of the flow of money, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it sounds yeah. really fascinating. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Cool. You want to say the title one more time? Sure. The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in the New Gilded Age by David Callahan. Great. Well, I will finish up my just read Um, by talking about two short stories that I read, one by Willa Cather, which was The Old Beauty, and that was for my uh, Willa Cather short story project that I'm doing every month. And this is a story that wasn't published during Cather's lifetime. She had submitted it to a journal, was it the Woman's Home Companion? I don't remember which one. The editor said, I don't really like it, but we'll publish it, and Cather withdrew it. Um, she mm-hmm. had sent it to her friend who was living in France at the time. And after her friend died, the friend's husband sent the story back to Cather, who conveniently mentioned it in a letter to her editor. And the editor uh, was like, oh, I want to see that. So the editor had it. And after she died, they published a collection of short stories that hadn't been published before. And this was one of them. And I, you know, it's about a woman uh, who was, at the height of her beauty and youth in like the 1890s and it's now 1922 and as Cather people know you know the world broke in two in 1922 or thereabouts so it's looking at those two time periods and how this woman who had once been this great beauty has changed 
And it's also her reflecting on her life and what she realizes she didn't do when she had the opportunity and how her life is. And, and, um, you know, I'm reading a criticism about the story and I, I do kind of feel like people are missing the mark a little bit because within the story, there's a character, um, who is very much like Cather herself. You know, she's, she's shorter and a little bit rounder than the, the beautiful woman who is tall and skinny. And as opposed, you know, she's a little bit younger too than the, the old beauty, but she is still staying kind of young and youthful and because she has nieces and nephews that she visits and she loves them and she enjoys watching them do things like frolic quote naked in the water and by naked they mean showing their arms and legs you know Um, (laughs) so i kind of feel like it is looking at the limitations of beauty and that if a woman relies on nothing but her beauty if she lives to be an old woman what will she have if that's Mm -hmm. all she's relied on and granted society is also placing her in that position too so it's not just her personal choice it's the culture that she's born into that shapes one's life. Um, But I really love that other character, you know, the one who is enjoying the changes in life and appreciating life and growing and changing with the times to a certain degree. So that was a really good story. It was my first time reading that one. Um, And then the other wonder, I was going to say, I would wonder with the critics that you're reading, I would imagine your age when you read it has a big influence on your perspective mm-hmm. of the story, right? Oh, yeah, I so, would think so. Yeah. 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 I think Chris Wallach needs to write a criticism of the story. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to read that. <laughs> it sounds like you really get it, and you are a Cather scholar, so I'd like to read that. No, you're kind. Thank you. Get to work. Get to work. No pressure. <laughs> so the other story I read then was for my book club, my in real life book club is now a zoom book club during this uh time period we were all hankering for some edith wharton so we read her short story called zingu and it's Hmm. it's x-i-n-g-u and uh it is about a group of women who are they're wealthy women and it is, I guess, the late 19th century, early 20th century-ish. I'm not sure when this story is set. She published it in, oh, she wrote it in 1911, and it was collected and published in 1916. It's about, so this group of wealthy women who have a culture club who invite an author to come and have lunch with them and discuss her book. And they are all different types of rich snooty women you know so it's about their personal culture clashes within their group or not their culture clashes but their personal personality clashes that they have and then it's representative of this type of new england woman and it was just really a hoot i have to say it's one of those one of those short stories that like when you finish it you want to start it again to see it play out a little bit more yeah Um, because they're pretentious i guess is a good word for them they're all a little bit pretentious and they get caught in their own webs so it's quite i have to say though the idea of like getting together and talking about books and inviting an author over sounds so lovely right now right (laughs) (laughs) for sure i know know. yeah you know 
another small point, I know I'm, I'm kind of going on about this, but there's a line in this short story. They're talking about a novel, and one of the characters, she, so she's saying, it's the dark hopelessness of it all, the wonderful tone scheme of black on black that makes it such an artistic achievement. Achievement. Mm. She's asking a question about it. And I just, I kind of love that, that whole black on black, you know, that something yes. has to be so dark to be considered artistic. You know, Laura mm. and I have had conversations of this where something, a story that is pleasant and happy, you know, isn't considered artistic because it's right. not, you know, dramatic, depressing right. and violent or whatever. And What's fascinating is reading that or, you know, having that little line in this short story harkens back to the Harry Beecher Stowe biography that I'm reading. There's uh, sections that talk about how at the time Stowe was writing, that is when the split was happening between highbrow and lowbrow literature and what was considered artistic and literary versus just mm. entertainment entertaining you know because back in the day everyone read shakespeare you know the lower classes were well versed in shakespeare but in the late 19th century it got claimed as highbrow literature and not for the quote masses which is who mm -hmm. shakespeare wrote for you know right so it's really fascinating and i love seeing these you know cross pollinations as they are between, yeah. between uh, liter literature stories yeah that's really cool. So, Biblio Adventures. Yeah, we've got, you know, couch Biblio Adventures now. <laughs> we Nothing's going to stop us. <laughs> <laughs> we do just want to remind people that we've been doing Friday videos um, on our BookTube channel. Stop by and check them out. And that and is then, on YouTube. Let me just clarify that because it's YouTube, but BookTube is like a subset of videos on YouTube. And I'm so on uh, the BookTube mindset these days that sometimes I type in BookTube <laughs> instead of YouTube. It's kind of funny. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's on YouTube. Well, as I mentioned, I did watch Unorthodox on Netflix. It's the it's a four-part series on based on loosely on I should say on Deborah Feldman's book and interestingly it really it goes back and forth in time for when she's in the Satmar sect as a Hasidic woman and then skips forward to Berlin where she ended up fleeing to and really spends a lot of time in Berlin which oh. is not in the book at all interesting so I really enjoyed it I read I watched two parts one night and then two more nights so I watched it all within the course of four days and I highly recommend it and then I'm also making my way through Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu oh. um, that's one where I think they're releasing an episode every Wednesday but they've already released like seven so if you're in a binging mode feel free <laughs> and that's based on the novel by Celeste Ng um, I'm really enjoying that. I think it's really well done. And you read the novel, right? I did. Yeah. I read it quite some time ago and really liked it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I recommend both. But I always recommend reading the novel first. <laughs> <laughs> and then I attended um, the Newburyport Literary Festival, which mm -hmm. was put online um, with the help of our buddies at A Mighty Blaze. Yes. And I sat in on two panels yesterday. One was called Cooking the Books. And the other one was called Afternoon Delight. Cooking the Books was about um, 
authors who, you know, write about food in their novels. And I really enjoyed it. It was moderated by our friend Chris. And then Afternoon Delight was about writing sex scenes. And it was really interesting and really good. And there being, you can actually go to the Newburyport Festival website and sign up for sessions and they'll send you a Zoom link. But they're also being um, streamed, I guess is the right word, on uh, A Mighty Blaze Facebook Live. So if you want to just wa- step in and watch them, you can do that. I don't know, though, if they're putting all of them panels on live. I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure how that's working. But I also think they've recorded them so you can watch them after the fact. So I'll look up links for all of that and put it in the show notes. I attended two panels as well. The first was with Melissa Crandall, who wrote Elephant Speak, A Devoted Keeper's Life Among the Herd, which is uh, about her friend who was a zookeeper of elephants for many years, many decades. So it's all about the elephants and his life as a zookeeper of them and what's going on with elephants today in the world. And then the other panel was called What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. And that was moderated by Liberty Hardy of Book Riot and um, had four or three or three writers, Michelle Philgate, Sari Botton, and Lynn Stagerstrong. It was a good panel. So I know that their next day is, is it May 3rd, Sunday? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I totally encourage people to sign up for those panels. The good thing is when you sign up or when you register, you do get an email reminder that also includes the link, which is really handy. It is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, it might be easier to be on the Zoom meeting versus the Facebook Live. I don't know a whole lot about Facebook Live. So upcoming adventures. Well, we already said it, the Newburyport Literary Festival, they're doing it next Sunday, May 3rd. So I have an upcoming adventure on May 3rd. Our buddy Shuli Kaywood is going to be in conversation with another author. Both of them have books launching on May 3rd from Press 53. It's called Small Things and Ancient Houses, a two-book launch. And that's, again, Sunday, May 3rd from 2 to 3.30. And I will put um, a link to that in the show notes. It's a Zoom meeting you can register for and go see it. Very cool. Yeah, I look forward (laughs) to that. The comfort of your couch. (laughs) So do you have any upcoming reads? I have an upcoming read. I don't know when it's going to happen, but it is a book that I recently ordered. And this is a book called Forever Amber by Kathleen Windsor. Look how big that is. I'm holding it up for Emily to see. I had no idea it was such a huge book. It is 972 pages, this edition that I have. Have you ever heard of this novel? No. I hadn't either. I was on a road trip one time with Laura and my mom. We were driving up around in New Hampshire. And Laura, one of the things I love about road trips with people is the questions and the conversations that come up. So Laura asked my mom, what other names did you consider for, for Chris? And my real name is Christina. And my mom said, well, one of the names was Amber. And we're like, Amber, really? Why Amber? And my mom said, well, when she was pregnant with me, she and my dad read a book called Forever Amber. It's a historical romance. And they just really, they love the book. 
but Christina won out because my mom was a fan of Queen Christina of Sweden, so that's who I'm technically named after. But I thought, well, I have to read Forever Amber now. Right. And look at the beginning. It has a map. Oh, you cool. You can't really see that. It's not really focusing in. So, yeah, it's the map of London under Charles II. So, and apparently, I'm looking at the back of the book. Forever Amber sold 100,000 copies in its first week when it was published in 1944. And it was banned in Boston. Hmm. Must be a little bit racy. I was going to say, how are you going to feel when you start reading all those sex scenes that your mom and your dad read together? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's a certain sex scene that they're like, "Mm, I don't think we should name her Amber. (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll see when I'm going to read this one. I don't know. Like, it is such a chunkster, uh, but I do want to read it this year at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love it. (laughs) My upcoming read is Real Life by Brandon Taylor, and this is the next book for my online book club that I'm a part of so I'm really excited about it it's a work of fiction and I don't really know much else about it but I know that two of the folks oh I just dropped it sorry (laughs) two of the folks in my book club loved it so it has high praise so we'll see well once again it's sad that we can't be in person but it sure is nice to see your face and still be able to talk about books absolutely it is yeah it's going to be so strange when we can get back together again i know i know i was saying to jim this morning i was like i think chris will probably be the first if not one of the first people that i break the social distancing rules with you know because we can sit across still six feet you know at at a table and talk to each other so hopefully we'll get to do that soon yeah I mean, we could probably technically do it now, but we'd have masks on, and that would be a little right. a little uh, unpleasant for <laughs> listeners to hear. <laughs> we could try it, I suppose. <laughs> Everybody, we're so excited that we got a chance to catch up with Will Schwabe. He is an author, an editor a supporter of all things books and he's a podcaster and we were really excited to get a chance to chat with him via Skype. Please enjoy our interview with him. Hi everyone. Today we're so excited to have joining us Will Schwabe and I can't just give him one moniker as I introduce him because he actually has many but Will is the author of three books, Send, Why People Email So Badly and How to Do It Better, the End of Your Life Book Club, and Books for Living. He's the, also a host of a podcast called But That's Another Story, and he has some breaking news around that for us. And he's also employed at Macmillan Publishers, but, well, we don't really know what you do there. That's a mystery to us. Oh, well, thank you for such a nice uh, uh, intro. And I'm so thrilled to be on on the Book Cougars podcast. Um, So as far as what I do, I try to keep it a little secret because then if I'm not doing it, uh, no one knows. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But my job really is as a kind of editor at large. So I acquire and edit books for all the different imprints, Flatiron, Farrar, Strauss and Giroux, Henry Holtz, uh, St. Martin's Press, uh, and all different kinds of books. I edited Melinda Gates's first book, The Moment of Lift. 
for the company. I do cookbooks like Jamie Oliver and Nigella Lawson uh, and a whole variety of different uh, books that uh, I, I acquire and edit, but a very select list, just a couple a year. Nice. Okay. So, Will, we wanted to ask you too, how did you first get into the book industry? Well, I had a, a funny path into the book business. I was always a voracious reader as a kid. I mean, I was one of those kids who, after I was supposed to go to sleep, I would have my flashlight under the covers and, and continue to read books. But when I was in high school, um, I really wanted to and needed to get a job. Uh, so I got a job as a temporary secretary. I am completely uncoordinated, but there's one thing I can do that involves manual dexterity, and that is type. I mean, very fast typist. So back in the 70s, if you could type 85 words a minute, uh, you could get a job as a temporary secretary. And I landed one at a company called William Morrow, which uh, was then uh, owned by a company called Scott Forsman. And I from day one, just loved it. I worked the switchboard, so I got to answer calls with an old plug-in switchboard, just like Lily Tomlin. Uh, <laughs> and I worked in production and royalties and sales, just filling in wherever anyone needed a temporary secretary. And we were publishing Sidney Sheldon, and we were publishing Shelley Winters and John Irving, and it was so exciting. So I was hooked. Yeah, I bet. Wow, wow. Did, you ever, did, did you ever take a call from one of those really big name authors and have to put them through? Well, uh, weirdly enough, we were publishing Spiro Agnew, the, as, as the wow. older listeners, listeners will know, the uh, disgraced vice president of the United States. So I got a call from him. But I almost got fired on my first day because I was working the switchboard uh, and the first call came in. And the caller said, hello, is this William Morrow? And I paused and I said, no, I'm sorry, he's dead. <laughs> um, and the person sounded a little disgruntled. It turned out that person was calling for the president of the company, who immediately came over to the receptionist desk and said, cut that out. <laughs> so... <laughs> That was the last time I used that line. I, actually, my defense, I got momentarily confused, and, and I really do think that I thought that he thought I was William Morrow. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, that's wonderful. Not just a sassy uh, young person. Not right? just a sassy 16-year-old um, right. who was uh, just learned to... Uh, but it was, it was the old-fashioned switchboard where you had to make the connection with the actual plugs. So that was quite fun. I bet. That's really an interesting job, though, because it really gives you insight into all aspects of the business when you move around and do different things. It really did. It was really great training because I had to type the purchase orders for the books. And every day for one hour, while the president's secretary, because they were called secretaries back then, was at lunch break, I would fill in for her. And I would have to type up his correspondence uh, using an old dictaphone. And that was fascinating. And I got real insight into publishing. And we were doing also writers like Joseph Wambau, who was uh, doing books like The Onion Field. And it was so exciting to type that correspondence. And I learned so much from him. And he's actually well into his 90s now. And we, we keep in close touch. He's a marvelous man named Larry Hughes. Oh, that's so cool. 
Well, well, my um, my at home recording setup right now currently includes my computer sitting on top of Larousse Gastronomique, which, for listeners who don't know, that's a very well thought of encyclopedia of food. And I look at it often, pardon my, you know, French, I don't have any French speaking skills. So that's my Ohio pronunciation of the book. But um, you have a background also where you started very early on in the world of the internet, the site cookster.com. Can you tell us how that came to be? So uh, my, my publishing career uh was just to fill in the blanks a little bit. Um, after uh, my temporary secretary time in college, I went to Asia and was a journalist for a couple of years. And then I came back and I was in publishing for 20 years. And I became editor-in-chief of William Morrow and then editor-in-chief of Hyperion. And then I just got the internet bug. I had published a book called The Long Tail by Chris Anderson, which was one of the most influential books about the new digital economy. And it was 2008. And I thought, I want to do my own thing. And I noticed uh, what I thought was a real gap in the market, which was these recipe sites were starting to spring up, but there was no quality control. So you would go on a recipe site and you would see, and I'm not making this up, one of the biggest sites had something called Wiener Soup. (laughs) And in Wiener Soup, you take a packet of hot dogs, you dump them in a pot of water, you boil them, you throw out the hot dogs, and you drink the wiener soup. So, oh, my. <laughs> oh, my is right. So I thought, why not take the greatest repository of recipes, cookbooks, make them available on the web, uh, and share the profits with the publishers and authors who had created the recipes and published them, kind of like a, uh, a collective. Uh, and so with Nigella Lawson, Jamie Oliver, and Mario Batali as uh, partners, and with uh, Katie Workman, um, wonderful author uh, and publisher, and another friend uh, who's in the digital business, I decided, let's start Cookster. And Cookster is going strong to these this day. And it's uh, cookster.com, and uh, you can find recipes from many of the world's greatest chefs and cookbook authors on it. Yeah, it's a really wonderful site. And we'll put all that information in the show notes for the listeners as well. So don't feel like you have to scramble and write it down right now. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. don't make the wiener soup. Trust me, no. it's not on <laughs> Skip the wiener soup. Oh, that is hilarious. Yeah, I just wow. listened to your the audio version of the End of Your Life book club. And I, you know, I know you talked about, you know, whether or not to jump and leave the publishing job that you had and just kind of how instrumental your mom was in saying to go for it. She did. She was uh, really adamant about that. Um, And what she felt, and it's an interesting philosophy, she felt that the advice that a lot of self-help books give is follow your bliss and sort of follow your passion, follow your heartbeat. And she felt that, it was really important to caveat that with not everyone is lucky enough to be able to do that, that um, for various reasons, you know, people have all sorts of things which, which keep them from doing it and to kind of make them feel badly for not following their bliss is to add insult to injury. But she knew that I had 
saved money for a while that um, my husband and I, we, we have no children and we were living quite modestly. And so she knew that I could afford to do it at least for a period of time. Um, and that I was young enough that, that if it didn't work out, I could get another job. So her philosophy very much was because I was so lucky to be able to, I almost had a responsibility to do so, but that I shouldn't extrapolate that for other people because you really needed to be aware that, that not everybody has that luxury. Yeah, that's, that's fantastically wise advice and insight into the human condition. Yes. Yeah, yeah I think a lot of unhappiness has been caused by that um, follow your bliss thing. I mean, a piece of advice that I love, which was contained in a, in a marvelous book that I published called Fish, um, which is a book about um, morale at work, was um, if you aren't lucky enough to be able to do a job that you love, try to find things to love about the job that you have to do, which I think is also uh, equally good advice and very broadly applicable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. I mean, I have a, a friend who found out she was going to lose her job. And as soon as she found out she was going to lose her job, which she complained about incessantly before that, all of a sudden, there were so many things about her job that she appreciated and felt like she was really going to miss. And then she ended up not losing her job. It was like they pulled the carpet back out from under her and then put it back in, you know. And it was a really great experience because then she had so much gratitude for this job that she had been complaining so much about before, you know. That's such a marvelous life lesson. I, I love that. And I, I also do think for people who are privileged enough, to be able to do what they want to do, it's almost obscene to complain endlessly about your job. If you're lucky enough to be able to switch jobs, you really mustn't complain about the one that you have. Yeah, that's a very valid point, indeed. So when we introduced you, we alluded to the fact that we had breaking news about your podcast, but that's another story. Would you like to fill the listeners in? I would. So uh, over the last more than two years, I have recorded more than 50 episodes of a podcast called But That's Another Story, where I interview people I admire about a book that changed their life. And it was part of a Macmillan podcast network. Um, and Macmillan is not going to be doing that kind of podcast anymore uh, in order to concentrate really on the, the core business, which are books and audiobooks and ebooks. And so uh, we have two more episodes that will air over the course of April, uh, one with Emily Gould and a marvelous novel called Perfect Tunes, and one with uh, Jennifer Finney Boylan and her book Good Boy which is a memoir of her early life in Seven Dogs, about uh, seven dogs who changed her life. Um, and then it'll either be paused um, or uh, may, may or may not return. But um, I'm so proud of the 50-plus episodes that exist, uh, and they'll continue to be available, and I hope people will seek them out. Yeah, it's a fantastic podcast. And I, I think the first one that you did that aired that was with Min Jin Lee wasn't it that was the very first one right, it's still yeah. such a special one and we just rebroadcast it last week oh great um yes uh her talking about pachinko pachinko is such a marvelous book and Min is just one of those gems as as she's 
brilliant and generous and funny and warm and a great literary citizen. She's always supporting other people's books and podcasts and literary efforts. Yeah, yeah. we're huge fans of men around here at the Book Cougars, for sure. <laughs> She's so great, yeah. Well, it is a wonderful podcast. It's one of my favorites. And um, I love that you've got such a deep archive that, you know, if, if any of our listeners have never listened to it, boy, you've got some fun ahead of you. And, you know, if you have listened, they're always fun to go back and listen to as well. I have I have several favorites. The one with Min is one of my favorites, as is the one with Pamela Paul. Oh, that was really fun to interview Pamela Paul. She was a marvelous, uh, marvelous guest. And uh, who knows, you know, maybe every now and then there's a TV show which is taken off a network and then by popular acclaim, it's brought back. And uh, so, you know, maybe there'll be uh, throngs of of people demanding uh, we want, but that's another story. There you go. Yeah. Here we go. (laughs) Start the revolution here. Yeah, we are definitely part of that campaign. Thank you. (laughs) Um, The... uh, there's some very in the last couple of episodes there are some really special ones and ending with uh with emily gould and and jennifer uh finney boylan will be really uh, those are both marvelous episodes as well look forward to them so will are we allowed to ask you what you're currently working on in with when you're wearing your author hat ah what i'm currently working on well it's funny i i'm very superstitious about talking what i'm working on uh, and uh, part of it is I feel like the energy it takes to get something down on the page, uh, that if I talk about it, that energy dissipates. And so I try to reserve the energy for the page. What I have told people is that it's about a 40-year friendship. And so that that much I'm saying. And what I won't do uh, to the two of you, because I'm so fond of you, and we've known each other for many years now, and I'm so crazy about both of you, and I love this, the Book Cougars podcast. But sometimes when people ask me what the new book is about, in order to keep from saying what it's really about and dissipating the energy, I just make something up. So... <laughs> I'll say it's about a Swiss watchmaker and he lives in a little village and it's about the relationship between him and he has a pet mouse. And, you know, I'll just go on and on and just just create something out of whole cloth. But uh, Chris and Emily, I would never do that to you. So so I I will uh, give you the real answer, which is I I don't say too much about it. I think someday well, someone will compare all of the stories I made about the they'll be I thought it was about a dolphin. I thought it was about the watchmaker. Yeah, I, I thought that. it was now set in media. Zimbabwe. So you can find it out, you know, like people be like, wait a minute. Wait I a heard minute. It about it being about this, you know. Exactly. <laughs> but I advise other uh the the other thing which is my hearkening back to my uh William Morrow he's dead, the uh sassier um part of my um personality is someone will say, um What's your book about? And I'll say it's about three hundred and two pages, but I don't. <laughs> that, that's a name too, so I, I won't do that one either. But um, bum. But um, bum. Exactly, exactly. That's the borscht belt side of me, um, which I, I try to keep hidden for everyone's um, mental health. 
Well, well, we are looking forward to your book, whatever it ends up being about. It will be a great surprise to turn that first page. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. And I hope you'll have me back when the time comes so I can yammer away about it. For sure. Absolutely. How about how about if we ask you one more question, which is what if, what are you currently reading or something you've read recently that you think we should know about? I'm sure you know about this one, but uh, I read uh, Dear Edward by Anne Napolitano, uh, which is the novel about a boy who is the sole survivor of a plane crash. And I found it so engrossing, uh, so involving, so moving. It's a, I think I used up an entire box of uh, hankies at, at the end, but in a really good way. It's it's a beautiful, life-affirming book. So that's a very recent read. And I actually had not read The Friend by Sigrid Nunez, uh, which had won the National Book Award. So I'm in the middle of that. And the, I'm sorry, you probably can hear a bell going off in the background. I don't know if you can hear that. And uh, how about you? I just, do you mind if I ask you too what you're reading? Not at all. Yeah, go ahead. You want to go, Chris? Well, sure. I have found myself being drawn to biography and horror uh, during this time of quarantine. So I'm reading Harriet Beecher Stowe's Alive by Joan Hedrick, which won the Pulitzer some years ago. And then I'm reading, I can show this, this is Kill Creek by Scott Thomas, which is a haunted house story. It's about four horror writers who get roped into spending the night in this haunted house on the plains of Kansas. Sounds marvelous. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Adding <laughs> good, that to the list. Good escape. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people um, are reading a lot of horror and thrillers these days, but I, I just opened up a one that's actually been sitting on my shelf for two years, I think, and it's a nonfiction called The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in the New Gilded Age. Mm. It's by David Callahan, who's in charge of Inside Philanthropy. And um, I'm I'm doing a lot of work in philanthropy right now, and things are really heating up. And so I thought, you know, it's, it'd be a good time to read that book. And I'm really enjoying it. He's It's very dense. He's a very... Um, intelligent man but it's it's mostly about the fact that we have all this tremendous wealth in the country right now and people like bill and melinda gates that are you know spearheading these big foundations and really changing how our world and our government work and so um i'm really enjoying it but it is very heady so it sounds very heady that sounds yeah i've it's in this time of um confinement I've been finding I've been reading almost entirely fiction mm. and I've been, I've been going gravitating to very plot driven fiction. Mm. Um, but also um, short novels too, because I, I like to start a book at the beginning of the day and, and finishing, finish it by, by the, uh, the end. And it was funny. I, I was brought to mind a time when I was away at boarding school. Cause I went to boarding school as a kid and I got some kind of thing that, that put me in the infirmary and I had nothing to do uh, but read. And I remember I started the day reading The Sun Also Rises and I read it, read it, read it, and I finished mid-afternoon and then I read The Moon Is Down and I stayed up all night <laughs> reading that. And it was one of my perfect reading days. Two marvelous uh, books kind yeah. of uh, 
paired by title. So I'm always looking. I love the feeling of starting and finishing a book in a day. There's something really satisfying about it. And I, I can do that with a short novel, but not with a uh, heady book of nonfiction. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah that's reading. true. Yeah, the last book that I, I too consider that the perfect day when I finish a book in one day. And the last book I did that with was a memoir by Saeed Jones, How We Fight for Our Lives. I love Which, that. I read How We Fight for Our Lives. It is so marvelous yeah. uh, and engrossing and beautifully written. Yeah, I, I did yeah. that one in a day, too. I think that was a indolent Saturday where I lay in bed all day and read it. And my poor husband, who was sort of busy cleaning the house and doing this and that, kept glowering at me. But, uh, <laughs> the glowering had no effect. Uh, nothing was tearing me away from that book. He probably has completely different feelings about these books that you feel so wonderful about. He's like, oh, I remember that one. That's when <laughs> yeah, I remember mom- that one. <laughs> uh, the dishwasher does not unload itself, Sonny Jones. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's why winter is, Chris and I both love winter so much. It's like an excuse. We Sorry, we have to stay in the warm bed and read today. Exactly. Yeah. You have to stay in, have to read, have to stay under the covers, can't go out. So, yes. Yeah. Well, well, we really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule. Oh, yes, my very busy schedule of sitting around the apartment. (laughs) But um, thank you, Emily and Chris. I love I could talk to you all day about books. And we have we have talked a lot about books on other occasions in person. Um, So I, I can't wait till I was saying to someone, I can't wait till. The word social is not followed by the word distancing, um, but exists all by itself. So uh, really excited about that. Yeah, we'll have to meet up in New York for another dinner and good book talk. Absolutely. That would be great. Well, and, you know, this was originally supposed to be an in-person interview. So also thank you so much for being flexible and being willing to use technology to make it happen anyway. Well, uh, yes, we'll, we'll thank the good folks at, at Skype um, who helped make this possible. Um, and uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. It, it brightened my day to, to uh, see and hear both of you. Thank you oh, so thanks, much. Will. All right. So, take all right. care. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.